0: My name is Nathan Johnson, and over the past few months, I have started to interview professionals in space law and policy to try and find out exactly what that means. Here are some of their answers so far. Welcome to a special episode of the Astro Esquire Podcast. Hi, my name is uh, Chris Hersey, and uh, I am currently the founder and CEO of the consulting firm OSA Consulting, LLC. I previously ran for Congress as a Democrat in Maryland's sixth congressional district in 2018. And previous to that, I worked for Bigelow Aerospace, uh, first as corporate counsel and then director of the DC office. You know, I think that there's a a wider dynamic when you talk about space law because, well, what the hell is a lawyer actually doing? right is he in court is he defending your rights some some other way is he doing it uh you know behind in the back room with the other attorneys negotiating the, you know the the 3000 page contracts um you know what what exactly is is space law and i think it's it's important to to have that perspective because again you, you asked me and you're going to ask several other guests i'm sure over over the next period of time that you're recording what is space law? And they're probably going to give you a, a similar answer each time, but there's always going to be some deviation where you're just going to be like, well, I don't know. Does that fit? Does that make sense? Are we really talking about it from this perspective or that perspective? And that's the problem with space is that you could look at it very narrowly. You could look at it very broadly and uh, rules in which govern activities generally are written very broadly to accommodate all types of activities, but they still are found it necessary, a group of people, or in this case states, to write down some basic rules. And so space law, at least to me, means you know, those rules, customs, norms, laws, regulations that govern act- the activities of states and of individuals, whether they're corporate entities or they're natural persons. And they're all part of an ecosystem that has to operate in an environment that is completely and wholly unnatural and, you know, less than a thousand people, maybe even less than 600 people on this planet that have ever lived, have any experience of what it's like to be off the planet in that way. And, and even so they didn't go very far. Um, You know, a group of us or a group of them, a group of humans went to the moon. Right. So, you know, our conception of law is going to change as we venture, venture further and further and further out. And, it's interesting for me because I don't necessarily consider space as special as, as, maybe others might. And what I mean by special is there are just some arguments I've heard that just make space as either this pristine virgin thing that can never be corrupted. Um, or it's a, uh, a place, a dumping ground for wishful thinking, uh, wishful ideas about Either humanity or what we could expect from people, and so at the very least, I would, if you want to go name-calling, I'm a bit of a realist and a pragmatist because, again, you can't argue with physics, and that's the major barrier to most of space exploration is just basic physics, and overcoming the engineering obstacles to be able to have the technology to do the things that people really want to do, and. We're only getting more sophisticated, and we're only going to seek to do more sophisticated things. So that's why I think it's overall overall natural that we go into space, and lots of different actors will go into space. But how we manage that that race, so to speak, I think is is will be the defining moment for space law.
1: Hello, my name is Elsbeth Majilton, and I am the executive director of the Space, Cyber, and Telecommunications Law Program at the University of Nebraska College of Law. Uh, The conversation today, though, is in my capacity as an individual, not in my capacity as a representative of the university. Not that I intend to say anything terribly controversial. So when I talk about space, and I'm, I'm doing air, you can't see it, but I'm doing air quotes around space law. When I say space law, to me, that is... description of something that I kind of I I dare to say this kind of considered a subset of international law right of course there's tons of domestic law in there that interplays and there's comparative law things there but I, I see it people who are specialized in space law are in many ways international law experts and when I'm talking about the body of laws that impact space I'm thinking of treaties liability convention the actual pieces of law themselves Laws that are directed at activities and uses of outer space, as far as the general public, I just spend a lot of time at events and dinner parties explaining that it's a thing that right? <laughs> um, space law isn't completely in the realm of the hypothetical. very often, even you know some of the newspaper magazine articles that I've done the, all the journalist wants to talk about is you know murder on another planet or. Um, what happens when the aliens finally come? And those sorts of questions, And those can be interesting hypotheticals. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever test hypotheticals. that's That's what lawyers and particularly legal education does, right? is think in the hypothetical. but but space law isn't hypothetical. There's real current business law considerations to be made here and international law considerations to be made here that are real time and that are not hypothetical by any stretch of the imagination. And so, I think a lot of people think, well, this is going to become a thing. And I say, no, it's already a thing, right? This is, uh, there's a satellite industry out there facing this regulatory scheme. <laughs> it's, a, it's, an, it's a real non-hypothetical body of law. And so I think that's my most frequent conversation with people. Once you kind of explain that, they, the, you can see the light bulb turn on, right? There's a moment where they think, oh, yeah obviously. <laughs> there's, there's really lawyers that do this, and we, there's maybe a small group of people. It's not as big as other areas of law, obviously, um, but it's already a viable and regular practice area.
2: Hi, my name is Laura Montgomery, and I am a space lawyer. I teach space law at Catholic Universities, Columbus School of Law, where I am an adjunct professor. I have my own practice through my law offices at Ground-Based Space Matters. I blog, and uh, I'm also not a space lawyer because I write science fiction. And one of the reasons I I say I'm not a space lawyer in that context is because some of my science fiction has space law issues in it, and I don't want anyone thinking that's legal advice. It's fiction. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I don't know that it's a misconception so much as they just aren't aware of it. And and I certainly don't fault the general public. I'm sure there's all sorts of stuff I don't know about, you know, agriculture. But I think sometimes people think that space has no law. You know, they, they think there's NASA and that's it. They don't know that launch operators or satellite operators are subject to FAA and FCC licensing requirements and regulations or that NOAA has a say in in taking pictures in space and so um, they think that that space has no law and I think that's one The other one that's more of a I guess a pet peeve if, am I allowed a pet peeve do you want to hear yes that? Okay. yes absolutely okay <laughs> is when I'm talking to people who who really you know are outside of the field they're like well, it's not like you're gonna be able to tell people on the moon what to do. And and I'm thinking, well, maybe in 200 years, and I yes, I did read The Moon is the Harsh Mistress about revolution on the moon against Earth, but right now, everybody's on the ground, and you can totally enforce against people on the ground because they, that's where all their property is, that's where they're incorporated, and that's where they are. So. You know, if your your immediate concerns are, how are we going to incentivize people to get off the planet and build habitats and start mining and all sorts of, you know, interesting human activity in outer space, concerns about lunar governance three centuries from now are just not high on my list. And and I don't think that saying, oh, you'll not be able to get them, it's not going to matter for a long time. For a long time, we'll be able to get them, in, and we'll be able to be got, depending on your perspective.
3: Hi, this is Diane Howard. Um, I am a legal academic and a practicing attorney, and I love space. But what do I consider to be space law? It's a subset of international law for sure, and in fact that's when i when i teach that's how i explain it so it sits under an overarching umbrella of, of international law and then of course there are many layers to space law we have the overarching international law we have the res specialis of space law itself and then we also have uh, domestic law. So we have you know the, the the onion layers continue to peel and then within domestic law we have you know statutory law we have regulatory law we have advisory and guidance We have lots of soft law throughout everything I just described, and and I would say that anything that is drafted, designed, negotiated with the intention of having some linkage to human behavior in space, getting to space while in space, getting back from space, I would say that that would satisfy my requirements for the definition of space law. Eileen Galloway, she, in one of her early writings, or maybe not so much early, but, but midlife writings, talked about the unique characteristics of space law. And she said that there were, you know, four four things that, that space law included. And that was that it was both national and international, and that it was about you know, the things that happened in a specific area and that specific area itself. So, you know, the geographic area, if you will, and then the activities within that activity, and then it had this national and international component. And and who am I to argue with timing mean, gallery? <laughs> it's a misconception that the general public, the general uninvolved public has about law in particular. I, I don't think that a lot of people completely understand where the source of laws authority comes from and and so i think sometimes there's for the lay person there's a bit of a disconnect between an under uh, in an understanding of the role of states and then the role of non-state actors and and still at the end of the day and and there certainly is a role for non-state actors i and that's what's so exciting about the here and now is that this is acknowledged. It's it, it has been for a, more than a decade or two, and and that they're you know invited in. It's there's still a certain amount of pushback and resistance from some some countries, but that's a wonderful thing. But I think that this is something that the public doesn't always understand. Well, why can't it be this way? So, or you know, the, just because you have an opinion doesn't make it so. There are actually legal obligations and 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 coming up with a better idea or having an opinion or being able to argue that opinion isn't necessarily, at the end of the day, the thing that's going to be determinative of whether or not it happens. At the end of the day, you need political will.
4: Well, my name is Michael Simpson and uh, currently, uh, recently retired from the Secure World Foundation. I continue to work as a professor of policy and space law at Uh, the International Space University and am serving as the managing director of the International Institute of Space Commerce. Well, I think it is a pretty broad field in that it describes on the one hand the relationship of nation states in their actions in space, particularly these days in Earth orbit, but also involving a longer distance space flight. But it also reflects a large body of municipal law that governs the way uh, citizens of a country are required to behave in their attempts to go to space, their attempts to use space, and their uh, interactions um, in space. So it has the, the joy of having substantial amounts of conflict of laws uh, discussion within it. And it uh, also has this interesting principle or interesting element that it is unique, I believe, among uh, elements of um, both municipal and international law in that there really is no opus of case law. Surrounding it. There's a little bit in the application of municipal law principles, but in international law, there's never been a case. And so talking about it is a bit more challenging since you have no case law to refer to. At the very least, the uh, agreement in the Outer Space Treaty to not make a claim of sovereignty off Earth um, has operated to the extent that the three arguably the three most powerful countries uh in the world russia china and the united states have all had what in the 19th century and before would have been a claim to the moon and nobody's attempted to exercise it although there are a few people out there now worried that um somebody might but the reality is There has not been such a claim in part because of the Outer Space Treaty and because law is far more than enforcement. It's also a set of agreements that you comply with because you don't want other people not to comply with them. And that is uh, certainly held space law together since the Outer Space Treaty. A mutually assured confidence, maybe Uh, a sense that Um, As long as we are reasonably attentive to the big pieces of our agreements, uh, we can expect that other people who have made those agreements with us will also be reasonably attentive to them. I think if we think about the Outer Space Treaty more as an organic document, as a kind of constitutional document, we recognize that we have elaborated three elements of that treaty in subsequent somewhat more detailed treaties. the rescue and return agreement, of course, and the registration agreement have had a pretty pretty substantial support, the liability convention. What probably is needed is, is some more detailed agreements and those detailed agreements, um, may not be treaties. I think there are in this argument between hard law and soft law, there are a lot of people who are beginning to say, you know, even the treaties aren't hard law. Maybe what we really need are coordinated Uh, municipal law statutes where we know how to enforce municipal law and where the agreements are not to create a treaty but to have similar language in national legislation and that that may well be a more productive near-term means of developing space law than than treaties, which are showing themselves to be hellaciously difficult to negotiate, and, and where the Moon Agreement indicates that finding a new consensus at the next level may be, may be difficult.
5: Hi, my name is PJ Blunt, and I am a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Luxembourg, I also teach as an adjunct in the LLM in air and space law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. And a third gig, I'm an adjunct at Montclair State University in New Jersey. So what space law means to me, and and I would have to, to... State that I'm I'm coming from this as an academic lawyer, right? I'm I'm not a, a practitioner in the sense that I represent clients. I'm a I'm a lawyer in the sense that what I do is is read and research and and give my opinion on the law in an academic setting. So for me, space law has always been. It's very broad. I look at space law as, as pretty much law that that intersects with the, the the space domain in some way, shape, or form, which includes you know all sorts of things. You get in addition to the treaties, which I'm sure a lot of the the listeners are out there are, are familiar with. You know, you you have export control laws, you have telecommunications laws, you, you have all these other laws that intersect with space. And so I throw a wide net and pull all of that into space law. And so space law to me really is law that concerns space. I, I worked with a, a handful of different people putting together international law syllabi, and they always, I'm always like, you should put a space law all day in there, you should discuss space law. And they're like, why? Nobody cares, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, first of all, it's, it's actually really important when you think about a lot of the, the, the things that space does, the international law of space is, is very important. But I also think that space law from an international legal perspective, not as a specialist in space law, but if I'm an international lawyer and I'm teaching space law, space law is so useful because it has so many exceptions to the normal rules. And if you really want to begin to talk about, you know the reason that we have certain rules and certain you know areas on 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 the planet and then how those changed when we we decided to write up a legal regime for space i mean it is a fantastic teaching moment and so as an international lawyer i mean space law is is actually quite fascinating simply because it's it's as though the drafters of these treaties were like think sitting around and being like what else can we throw at them that's weird and new and different and and i I mean it really like the outer space treaty is crazy when you read it compared to other treaties it's it's it doesn't match and i think that's why space law is so much fun as an international lawyer is because it's just it's weird I think that the you, when you when you get into what the general public knows and doesn't know, like they they, it's interesting because most people are like space law. That's a thing, and you're like, yeah, well, I mean, you know, we have a lot of stuff up there. Probably somebody is regulating it, and they're like, oh, that makes sense. But but I think the most interesting thing about the general public is is just an informal survey. The the most common response that I get is, oh, you're a space lawyer. Is that like who owns the moon? Which I find to be a, a fascinating thing, and it is obviously one of our the questions, but it seems like at the general public level, there's no recognition that we have a bunch of satellites up there that do things on Earth for us every day, and it would be absolutely ridiculous if all of those things were up there and there was no legal regime governing them, right? And most people have never put that connection together in their heads and so they're they're shocked when they hear about this idea of space law and you're selling well you know your cell phone it's connected to a satellite sometimes it's you know you might want some law there That satellite could be doing anything to your cell phone or you know probably not the satellite doing things to the cell phone um but you know it's it's this weird i think there's a weird misconception that it is actually a lawless place and and i find that to be kind of fascinating and and a fun thing to say you no know, you're you're wrong it's actually a lot of really boring administrative law
6: <laughs>
7: hi my name is Andrea Harrington and i am an associate professor at air command and staff college at air university where I teach in the Schriever Scholars Space Immersion Program. And I need to give the same disclaimer that Nathan just gave, saying that my views here expressed are my own and are not the views of Air University or the US Air Force. I do find that people usually want to understand what that means because they haven't heard a lot about space law and they don't understand how important space really is to -to day-to-day life on planet Earth these days people don't realize how dependent we are on GPS. Of course they know, okay, when I've got my iPhone or my Android and I wanna look at maps or figure out how to get somewhere or have an app, you know, give me the closest store for a particular brand in the area that I'm in, yes, that uses GPS, but that is probably the least impactful use of GPS as far as the functioning of our society is concerned. The the precision timing is arguably more important than the navigation piece that keeps our entire financial system functioning it keeps our electrical grids functioning so that's just one piece there but obviously satellite telecommunications are a very important factor weather prediction is of course very important and and our enhanced weather prediction capabilities using space-based assets have made an incredible difference you know, telemedicine and all of the things that can be done for folks in rural areas using space are really important. And then we have the things that people tend to think of when they think of space, which are space launch, which is very important also as we are continuing to develop moving forward as the commercial industry is becoming more and more involved with space. And then we see the cutting edge technologies that are coming forward, like space-based resource utilization or perhaps space-based solar power, which could have substantial impacts on the economy on earth. So I think people are interested to hear about the ways in which space is actually really important for people on earth. And of course, anything that's important for people on earth has a field of law that's essential to keep that functioning. A lot of people think the outer space treaty prohibits a lot of things that it simply does not. The most glaring problems there usually have to do with military uses. But in general, I think that people have this gut impression that the Outer Space Treaty is a very restrictive document. And I completely disagree with that assessment. I think the Outer Space Treaty is fundamentally an enabling document that the spirit of the Outer Space Treaty is geared toward encouraging human exploration and use of outer space. And that the limitations that the outer space treaty puts on that use and exploration are limited to what's necessary to ensure that we can do so in safe, cooperative, secure fashion moving forward, but that those restrictions are not onerous, are not prohibitive to business activities or bad for commercial industry, et cetera.
6: Mm-hmm.
8: Hi, my name is Chris Johnson. I am the space law advisor at the Secure World Foundation. I also teach space law at Georgetown University Law School here in Washington, D.C., and I serve as a faculty at the International Space University where I teach space law and policy. It's primarily international law, although there is the national component in national space legislation, and, and often U.S. national space legislation, but I really it's mostly focused on international space law, the Outer Space Treaty and the subsequent treaties and other international instruments which affect the space domain. It's really looking at that and seeing what is there, what is the content, what are the rights and obligations of international space law, what are the gaps and areas of uncertainty uh, that we can find in international space law, and really Um, Even deeper still, is there kind of a normative background or principles of space law that assist us when we reach the limits of what can clearly be stated about um, international space law? When you look at the Outer Space Treaty, um, it is not filled with gaps, uh, but there's so many uh, uncertainties involved in it um, just because it's a treaty on principles and it's limited in nature and it was drafted 50 years ago, um, that we look at it and say, well, uh, is there enough space law here to to really know what can be done and what cannot be done, what's permissible and what's impermissible? Some of those gaps that we can find or uncertainties were were intended to be placed there, that they were intentional, they were known, that there would be limits on 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 what the issues mean. And some of the gaps in space law only arise because of developing technologies. They only arise because we have so many more non governmental actors and private actors in outer space and so many novel activities that are on the horizon. Um, You know, the drafters of space law didn't envision the extent of commercial uses in outer space, and they certainly didn't envision space debris removal, satellite servicing, manufacturing in space, um, you know, commercial space stations long-term habitation of space and all the more futuristic activities that we can do in outer space. They, they didn't imagine those things. And the language that they wrote governing activities in space um, reaches its limit. And we go, well, there's nothing in the outer space treaty that say prohibits this activity, nor is there something that clearly permits that activity. So what do we do now? You know, as I lecture about space law, I always point out that, you know, the astronaut agreement expands upon Article 5. The Liability Convention um, expands upon Article 6 and 7. The Registration Convention expands upon Article 8 of the Outer Space Treaty with jurisdiction and control. And that's where we leave it. Um, You know, we may need um, further instruments which expand upon Article 9 due regard and harmful contamination. Uh, or other other provisions may need to be expanded on, um, including say Article 4's prohibition on nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. Is there a limit to that? Do we need a new international instrument that goes further in making space sustainable? Um, you know, it's a. I think a lot of people who practice space law, especially the more the more academic ones, feel as though they can merely look to the treaties and interpret the treaties successfully using the rules of treaty interpretation from the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties and come to an interpretation and go, I I have the answer. Article two means that we definitely can mine asteroids. And meanwhile, someone else who's also quite smart will look at article two and say, I have an answer. Article two means we definitely cannot mine asteroids. Um, because we want, you know, these practitioners and academics want to have an answer. They want to be able to say, I performed the, 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 the rules of treaty interpretation, I've applied them, and I have an answer, and it is this. I always am more modest in my conclusions about the, the interpretive result and, and say, you know, I don't think the answer is clear. Or maybe there's no no answer whatsoever, um, saying that space law neither gives a green light of permission or a red light of prohibition, but maybe a vague signal, a yellow light of it's not certain, but it's not outlawed, or maybe no light at all, no um, no indication as to an activity's legality or illegality. This is the more modest conclusion, I think.
9: Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Lara Forsek and I am a consultant and analyst in space policy and space industry. I am proud to be your first, not even close to a space lawyer guest. For me, that is the interactions that we have that help progress the sector forward. So the ways that we partner both internationally as well as on a small scale, we need the, the space policy and the space law in order to formulate the ways that we cooperate and interact with one another. And that's on a, a large scale with countries and on a small scale with individuals or small businesses and everything in between think that if you hold the general public and you ask them, they would probably immediately think of the military applications. And that is how it began. But it's not just all understanding ballistic missiles. And um, it, it's evolved since then. And so I don't know how much the public is aware of what the current issues are. I mentioned it to someone recently and was surprised that they knew about the FCC's um, debate about broadband and, and which Which bands to auction off for what uh, industries. And that's an interesting topic that I was surprised that someone was aware of. But there are issues that touch upon other industries, and that's probably where people are most aware. So, someone in the aviation industry might be aware of the airspace issue, and somebody who works in communications technology might be aware of broadband issues. So, I think that's where the in is. If you can tie it to somebody's industry, um, then you can really get their interest and show them that there's something going on in space that they should be aware of. The area that most interests me is actually the future applications. So the things that we are talking about now that will um, really help guide the activity in the future, especially with regards to human activity. So I'm thinking about the um, the paying passengers, the spaceflight participants or space tourists, if you will, that will um, be paying and taking their lives in their own hands and signing waivers so that they fly on these experimental aircraft, which will then turn into, um, you know, actual active operational aircraft. And then taking that one step further and thinking, okay, we're actually sending people to various planetary bodies, to the moon, to Mars, to asteroids, to other moons, and even to space stations in in, um, low Earth orbit, lunar orbit, what are these people going to be doing? How are they going to interact? What are the laws that are going to govern them? What are we going to do about mining? Mining is huge. I worked in grad school on ISRU. That's in-situ resource utilization. I worked a lot with the regulates. So that's the dirt and dust that's on these planetary bodies. And how do we use that? And the whole idea is that we will use what's there to create this new world and it's easy to do on earth because we've got the the soil with the nutrients and the organics and we've got the atmosphere that we can breathe it's very very difficult to do this on in space or on a planetary body such as the moon or mars very hostile environments so if we dig up dirt and we use this dirt and the minerals that are in this dirt this regolith, is that freely available to use? What about bringing it back? What about mining it for water and selling it to other companies or bringing it back to earth for like the, the, the types of minerals that we want to mine and all these different applications. So I'm um, sure there's been a lot to this point that has affected where we are right now, but I'm actually more interested in the future and how this all plays out, hopefully even within our lifetime.
0: Thank you for listening to the Astro Esquire podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website at astroesq.com and check out our Patreon page to subscribe for access to bonus content. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a review on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The Astro Esquire podcast is hosted and produced by Nathan Johnson. Our theme music was composed by Kevin Bloom.